redeeming love and that flow of blood that washes away our sins. That's what we are gathered here this morning to sing about, to pray about, and to meditate upon. So we're thankful to the Lord that we have another opportunity to gather together to celebrate the redemption given by our Savior, to celebrate the fact that the Lord has created us. We have breath and life and movement today, and uh, we exist in his world. And we don't exist by accident. You know, that's a thing that I think our world teaches us. The, the worldview, the secular worldview around us is that we're just here by accident, really. No meaning, no purpose. Uh, just make the best of the accident that you are. Uh, but we know that we live and move and have our being by the will of God. And so we are here this morning having our being in church, gathered with God's people, celebrating our Savior. And so for me personally, it is good to be back. And I want to thank Trey for teaching us again from Philippians last week. Uh, what a blessing. And these sermons from Philippians have really been so helpful for our life together as a congregation, constantly bringing us back to what citizenship in the kingdom of God looks like, what it is, what it means to do that, not as individuals, not as isolated individuals, but uh, as a flock, as a people who are together, who have fellow citizens in this kingdom. And so I think these have been so helpful for binding our hearts together as a congregation, that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling corporately, not just on our own, in our private prayer room, but corporately. So today we return to Exodus and specifically to the ten plagues. So if you would, please go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 9. And today we're going to be in chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. So far, we have covered the first four plagues. The Nile was transformed to blood. That was the first one. And then we read of the frogs being everywhere, coming up out of the Nile and out of all of the waterways and pools of water, coming up onto the land, coming into the houses, everywhere. The third plague was gnats or lice or mosquitoes. We talked about uh, how these were, uh, it's unclear precisely what sort of animal this was, what sort of insect this was, but a sort of small, light, uh, biting insect. And then fourthly, we saw the flies, a larger biting insect, the flies everywhere, all over the Egyptians. As you've heard me say before, the first nine plagues, plagues are broken into three sets of three uh, with this pattern. So within each set of three, the first, you get down by the water in the morning. The second, Moses goes into Pharaoh, so likely into his palace or whatever house he is in at the time. And then the third in each set is without warning. It just comes. It just falls. And so we have the first three and then the second set of three and then the final set of three. So with the fourth plague... Last time, a couple of weeks ago, we started the second set. And I started that by saying that undoubtedly Pharaoh there, as he goes out to the water that morning, is probably thinking to himself, not again. That the whole thing is starting over. He's, he's gone through these different 
encounters, these three different kinds of uh, scenarios of encounters, and now it's all coming back to the water in the morning. And we saw that first of the second set, the last time was the flies. This morning, I have decided to take the fifth and sixth plagues together. This is, it's difficult to determine how much time to spend uh, on each of these, but as I was going through, what I noticed at the very beginning of the plagues was that there was really a different feature being introduced with each plague until you get to the fourth plague where you get this distinction made. And so uh, we see these different features in each of those first four plagues. Of course, there are different features, unique features in each of the plagues, but for this morning, I've decided for a few reasons to take the fifth and sixth together. So let me just give you a few reasons. Uh, First, they are pretty short accounts, and they repeat a number of things that we've already seen. And so if you go into each of the accounts and you read them, a number of the things, the details, the elements are repeated, though there are certainly new items here. They both deal with some sort of sickness or pestilence, so they can be grouped in that way, some kind of illness or sickness. And finally, they round off the second set the second and third plagues in the second set. So when we come to the end of today, with the end of the sixth plague, we will have finished the second set. We'll be going into, next time, the final set before the tenth plague. And also what we notice is that the next plague, the plague of hail, is quite a long account. So there's a lot of details given there. So for those reasons, I've decided to go ahead and group these two together. So the title for the sermon this morning is the fifth and sixth plagues, death and disease. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh... And say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of Yahweh will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And Yahweh set a time, saying, Tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land. And the next day Yahweh did this. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So there's the fifth plague, and now we're going to read the sixth. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt. And become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. 
And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians, or as they've been translated, the sorcerer priests, could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon these sorcerer priests and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And you can see, just looking down, the seventh plague is quite a long account. So we'll go there next week. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for Him by His Spirit to illuminate His Word. And you know, the Spirit, He is the one who inspired the Scriptures. He is the one who illuminates the teaching of the Scriptures and gives the gift of teaching. And He is the one who uses the Scriptures to transform our hearts and to sanctify us. So how greatly this morning do we need the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. So let's pray and ask for God by His Spirit to work among us, to sanctify us, to illuminate His Word as it is taught. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity this morning to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, it is overwhelming to think that there are millions and millions of people gathered this day to worship this risen Christ. Even earlier, as Dennis was praying for Ukraine, we just think that our relationship with the Christians all over the world is a deeper, more profound relationship than we have with our fellow Americans. We're grateful for our country, and we thank you that you have bound us together as fellow countrymen in the United States. But Lord, we recognize that we belong to a higher kingdom. A kingdom that transcends all fatherlands, all earthly nations. We're grateful, Father, that this day, by your Spirit, you're working. You're working in every land across the globe. And you're working here. In this place, with this people, Lord, we pray that this work would be powerful, that this work would be your Spirit's work and not the work of man, not the work of human ingenuity and creativity and articulation, not the work of human resolve or self-will or discipline. But God, that this would be the work of the Holy Spirit of God. That this would be the work that is lasting. That is deep. That is mighty to save and to sanctify in the name of Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you even for these texts that seem so distant from the reality of our daily lives, these very distant occurrences, these miraculous events that are so far removed from our daily experience, so historically distant. And yet, Father, they are so relevant to our lives, so relevant to who we worship and how we worship and how we live. God, we pray that that would be evident this morning by your spirit, 
that you would work in each of us, Lord, as only you can do. You know each of our lives. Each of our hearts. So do your work, we pray, by your spirit, in Christ's name, amen. So we have two plagues this morning, the fifth and the sixth, and since we have two plagues, I figured it'd be most reasonable to have two points, and so we have two plagues, two points, so you'll see those up here on the screen, the fifth and sixth plagues, death and disease, two points, two plagues to consider. First, we have dead cattle, verses one to seven. And secondly, we have debilitating ulcers, verses 8 to 12. So dead cattle, debilitating ulcers. Not the sort of thing you want to talk about or think about, but there you go. These are the plagues that God brought on the Egyptians. Two plagues to show God's glory. And we see God's glory in so many, so many facets of God's glory through the plagues. We see God's glory as creator. God is working in the creation. And, and that's something that I think uh, we need to recognize. We, we don't know how God is manipulating and using creation. Uh, some have tried to explain the ten plagues naturalistically. And so they've tried to begin with the inundation of the Nile, with the flooding of the Nile, and, and how that precipitated all of the other plagues and all of the, uh, the different things that flowed out of that. I could stand up here and give you an account of how that has been explained. I'm not going to do that. We've talked a little about that. Uh, but that, that entire line of reasoning, I think, is erroneous for this reason. What we are dealing with fundamentally in the account of the plagues are, are profound miracles. God demonstrating his ability to create his ability to transform. And so while I don't, I don't think we can explain these plagues naturalistically, we really don't know how God is using the plagues and tying them together. Ways that perhaps natural phenomenon are at work as these miraculous events take place. But these plagues show God's glory as creator. He is over his creation. He's sovereign over all of it. Over every bug, over every animal, over every man, over every speck of dust. He's the creator. We're also seeing his glory as judge. God judges sin. That's fundamental to who God is. Never let your view of God Lose sight of the fact that God is judge. Peter, writing to Christians, even tells them to remember that the one they call Father is also their judge. God is judge. And we know that through the judgment placed on the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, that we have passed from death to life, that we have gone from being under God's judgment to standing in his grace. As Paul says, as he goes into Romans 5, this grace in which we stand. But we must never forget that God is judge. And the New Testament is clear. We too, as believers, will stand before God. 
clothed, yes, in the righteousness of Christ, but we will give an account to God for our lives, for our works, for how we spent our time, for how we used our resources, for how we raised our children, and how we treated our spouse, for how we related to our brothers and sisters in Christ, for how we treated his church, for how we controlled our impulses, for how diligent we were in prayer. Every act in this life is meaningful, and we're reminded that the Lord is judge. And that, of course, draws us to the glory of God's grace in Christ. We, we, we never read passages of God as judge and don't immediately think of the blood of Christ, because the only way we are saved from the judgment of God is through the sacrifice of Christ. Every sin must be judged in this universe. It will either be judged eternally in hell or it was dealt with definitively at the cross. Every sin of Lonnie, every sin that you have, will either be paid for eternally in hell or it was nailed to the cross. God is judge and he is savior. All that he is doing in the plagues is to save his people. Uh, we're reading an account of salvation. Yes, we get these judgments and these strikes against the Egyptians. But what we're reading is an account of salvation. The greatest account of salvation in all of the Bible apart from the death and resurrection of Christ to which it points. We are reading of God, our Savior, and we are seeing that God is the only true and living God. He's putting all false gods to shame, just as he did at Mount Carmel with Elijah. God is showing his supremacy and his uniqueness, and that he alone is God. So, as we get the sermon underway this morning, I just want to ask you, are you seeing God for who he is through these plagues? Are you checking out during these plagues? Or are you just interested in these plagues? You know, I'm, I'm a history, I love history and I love documentaries. And I could see maybe some of you are just sort of thinking about this historically or in terms of your interest. It, it's so much more than that. It is about our souls. It is about the glory of God. Are you seeing God? For who he is. As holy, set apart, supreme, entirely unique. As we worship this morning, we are worshiping this mighty God who brought the ten plagues to save his people. This is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. The God who did this is the God whom we pray to this morning. We're not just talking to ourselves when we pray. The God to whom we pray this morning is the God who brought these plagues on Egypt. In verse 3 we read this, The hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. We just read that. Consider this morning, as we're going through these two plagues, that this same mighty hand is the hand that holds and guides us. Jesus says in John 10, 29, that no one 
is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. As you see the, the power of God's hand bearing down on Egypt, know that that's a powerful hand that holds you, that grips you, child of God. And Psalm 139, 9-10 says, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So this is our God, the God who holds us, the God who leads us, the God who never lets us go is the God who stretched out his hand and brought destruction, utter ruin to the land of Egypt. Praise God this morning, if you're a Christian, that God's hand is no longer against you, but that God's hand is around you and before you and behind you, that God's hand is for you. So first, we look at the dead cattle. This is the fifth plague, verses 1 to 7. Let's read those again together. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Uh, That's comprehensive. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land, and the next day Yahweh did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So here we see God sending Moses to Pharaoh again. And as with the second plague, Moses goes into Pharaoh, to his house or into his palace of some sort. Moses is to deliver the word of God. That is Moses' job. His job is to be a bringer of the word of God. And not just any so-called God, but this is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Now, really, this, this is something that we lose sight of. It is amazing that the eternal, infinite God has identified himself with a people. And even more, that he has identified himself with a slave people. God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we recognize that. And it is through the line of Abraham that God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Understood Christ as the King Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father. Christ, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, is the eternal Son of God. And he became incarnate and became the Son of God, descendant of David. When we read Son of God language throughout the Bible, we understand two things to be true. 
the eternality of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and the Son of God understood messianically as we think about the second psalm. The Son of God is also a messianic title, and Jesus is God's Son. But all of this goes through the line of Abraham. And that is why God makes clear that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Forever this is his name, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Israel. He is the God of the Hebrews. He has identified himself forever with a particular people, a slave people. This word of God that Moses will bring from this God of the Hebrews must be obeyed. It is true, powerful, and authoritative. Pharaoh must let the Israelites go to worship their God. And as we've seen before, the command is followed by a warning. If the hand of Pharaoh continues to hold the people, then the hand of Yahweh will fall on Egypt. You see the language there. Verses 2 to 3, for if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, i.e. with your hand, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. A very severe plague from the hand of God. This plague, presumably some form of pestilence, will result in the death of all the livestock or cattle that are in the field. It says that in verse 3. And we read of this happening in verse 6. All the cattle, all the livestock in the field will die. Now, we've already seen God say when a plague will end. That's not a, a new feature. God has stated in the past that this plague will end at this time and through Moses initially, and it ended at that time. But this is the first time that he says when the plague will begin. And so in verse 5, we read this, and the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So what does this mean for the Egyptians? When God says, tomorrow I will do this thing, well, it means that the Egyptians have time. They have time to act, time to bring the animals in from the field because God says that it is the livestock or the cattle in the field that will be affected. So they are given time to gather their livestock and bring them in from the field. Not until tomorrow will God bring this plague. And it's just another reminder of God's grace. God's grace to sinners. God's Grace, that his common grace that he pours out on all people. Everyone who woke up this morning is a recipient of God's grace. Every moment of happiness in this Ecclesiastes-like life, every moment of happiness is common grace. Every bit of tasty food, every ray of sunshine, every cold drink on a hot day, every birth of a child, every experience of life, part of God's common grace. And here he grants his grace to these slave drivers. Here he grants his grace to these oppressors of his people. There's time to turn, time to repent, time to 
believe. And let me just say that to you this morning as you think about God's coming wrath, God's coming judgment on sinners. Hear this word tomorrow. Let this word tomorrow fall on your ears. Let it fall on your heart. Turn to Christ while there is still time to repent. Tomorrow there may be no more time to flee from the wrath to come. Turn now. And let me say this to you, kids. Don't wait. Flee now. Flee now. Walk away from sin now. Turn to Christ now. Today is the day to repent and believe in Christ. Don't wait until you're older. Don't wait until you've done a few more things. If you're a teenager here this morning, don't say, well, that'll work out for me when I get older. You may die tomorrow. Any of us may die this very day. Now is the time to flee God's wrath and turn to Christ for tomorrow the judgment will come. So what I want to do now is take a moment to briefly look at this plague in terms of three effects. This fifth plague, I want to look at it in terms of three effects. First, the distinguishing effect. Second, the economic effect. And then finally, the religious effect. So first, the distinguishing effect. In the last plague that we looked at, the plague of flies, we saw God draw a dividing line. It's beautiful. God is in control of, of time and space, and he has the ability to distinguish and to draw distinctions among people. And we saw last week that God drew a dividing line between the Egyptians and his people. Chapter 8, verse 22. And on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell. Here we see this represented, as we will in future plagues, Uh, I mean, here we see this repeated with chapter 9, verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Now, in the future plagues, I think we are meant to understand that no longer will any plague fall on Israel. And as I told you before, there's debate as to whether or not the first three plagues, uh, how, to what extent they affected the Israelites. But at, at beginning with plague four, we are told that the Israelites are no longer impacted. Now, uh, the, Moses does not repeat this with every single plague that follows. In fact, with the sixth boil, you see no mention of this distinction. But I think after the fourth plague, we are to understand that this distinction uh, is in place. That no longer will God strike Or no longer will the Israelites be subject to anything that happens to the Egyptians. And so we read in verse 4, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Those in Israel will be alive. Those in Egypt will die. And that's what we read. God uses the plague once again to distinguish his people. Verse 6 All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Notice the contrast here. All versus not one. It's not like you say a lot 
a, a handful, a few handfuls of the Egyptian livestock died, but, but not many of the livestock of the Israelites died. The contrast is absolute. All of the livestock in the fields of the Egyptians died. Not one of Israel died. Interestingly, we are told in verse 7 that Pharaoh this time sends out a search party. A team of investigators. This is the first time we're given this sort of language. He, he wants to check and see if this is the case. Is it true that all these livestock have just fallen over in Egypt? And is it true that not a single one of the cattle of the Israelites has died? So he sends out his investigators. And in fact, none of Israel's cattle have died. It is confirmed, verse 7, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. So we see the distinguishing effect of this plague. Secondly, we see the economic effect. It is hard for us to imagine living in the modern world. We're very detached from the way of life, from the lifestyle of these ancient peoples. But it is hard for us to imagine living in the modern world how much this plague would have impacted daily life for the Egyptians. Now, of course, all the plagues are upsetting and discomforting and, and, and they, they affect the daily life of the Egyptians. But here we see with the strike on the livestock a particularly devastating blow. The labor, transportation, and food provided by these animals essentially shuts down. And we see the diversity of the livestock affected. It, it's not just uh, the ones over here that we use for transportation or the ones over here that we use for meat or the ones over here that we use to plow fields. It's all of the livestock. It's all of this domesticated cattle. All of it gone. Remember when we were going through Genesis we read a lot about the prosperity that God had given Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was working out his purposes and his promises and his faithfulness to the patriarchs, building a people, building a nation. And one of the things that we constantly encountered, once again, so foreign to us as we were going through Genesis, one of the things that we constantly encountered was all of these domesticated animals, flocks and herds and so forth, the camels that are given as gifts when Abraham's Servant, for example, goes to find a wife for Isaac. So much mention of these livestock. Because that's the way the Bible is telling us that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were flourishing. That they were prospering. That God was blessing them as he had promised. Well, all of these are removed from the Egyptians. Not all of them in uh, totally, but all of them that were in the field. For some in Egypt, this would have utterly ruined them financially. And probably for some of those who are most well-to-do. Some of those who were the elites in Egyptian society, who probably owned many, many animals, gone. At least the ones that were in the field. Third, we see the religious impact. So we have the distinguishing Effect. We have the economic effect, and then finally the religious effect. Probably most importantly, the fifth plague is a tremendous strike against Egyptian religion. 
so many of their gods were associated with livestock. So let me just name some, some of these gods and goddesses who are associated with livestock. You have the Apis or Apis bull, representing Ptah, P-T-A-H. You have the ram of Amun. And then Hathor, the fertility goddess, was associated with cows. And Menevis, M-N-E-V-I-S, was the bull of Ra. And and for some of these, particularly with the Apis bull, you have a, a, a bull that is actually said to be representative on earth of the god. And so when this apis bull dies, there is this elaborate funeral. The, a sarcophagus is put together. You have this elab- these elaborate funeral rites. And then, of course, another bull is selected who is understood to be the representative, the embodiment of this God on earth. We're not told if any of these particular special animals who were set apart died, if they were in the field, they were gone. But at the very least, by striking the livestock, God is striking at the heart of Egyptian religion. He is striking the animals associated with these gods, and as I said, some of which may have been the very representatives of those gods, and he is shutting down their sacrifices. That's another thing to to consider It's not just that the gods are represented by these creatures, some of whom are literally there as representatives of the gods, but it is also the case that many of these animals would have been used as sacrificial victims to these gods. Sacrifice shut down. So what is the end result of this plague? This attack on the economy of Egypt, this attack, blatant, explicit, overwhelming attack on Egyptian religion. Even after Pharaoh hears the reports that no cattle have died among the Israelites, we read the result in verse 7. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. These words march their way through the ten plagues leading to ultimate destruction with the tenth plague. And of course with the Red Sea. We see Pharaoh's hardened heart. Let me just ask you this question if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Will these words march with you right into hell? Will these words march with you, walk with you hand in hand every step all the way through your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, on and on and on, into death, into hell. These words. But he hardened his heart. But she hardened her heart. May it not be said of anyone in this room. So we've seen the dead cattle, verses 1 to 7. Now we see the sixth plague, the debilitating ulcers, verses 8 to 12. Look with me there, please. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln, and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, 
And it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Here we are given a very short account of the sixth plague. It's very short. But the brevity of the account should not minimize the severity of the affliction. Uh, This was an absolutely devastating, afflicting plague on the Egyptian people. Moses is to take soot from the kiln and throw it in the air. Handfuls, as much as his hands can carry. No more than that. We don't need a bucket. Uh, No need for him to haul in truck loads of, or donkey loads, or camel loads uh, of, of this soot. He just fills his hands with as much soot as he can hold. And he throws it in the air. God will then transform and multiply this substance to become boils or sores on man and beast throughout all the land. God takes it and he multiplies it. Once again, we see the power of God as creator. We see that God is sovereign and capable over every speck of creation. Over all of the material world. He can move pieces. He can move people. He can move places. He can move and transform all things. And we've talked about this before, but it's worth saying repeatedly, if God has this kind of control over creation, if he has this kind of control over space, as we see here in the created order, and over time, as we saw before, then this is a God we can trust. Uh, This is an affront to worry. You think, What is really applicable about the plagues? Well, I think one of the most applicable things about the plagues, at least as we've seen so far, is the fact that they attack worry. How many of us struggle with the sin, and yes, it is a sin, as it is described in Matthew 6 and Philippians 4. How many of us just give ourselves over to this sin constantly? Worrying and worrying and worrying. All the while knowing that God has control over space and time. Every speck under his control. He can move your circumstances and change them. If he hasn't, then it's not his will. He's wise. He's perfect. He's in control. And he has the ability to make these changes. We walk in light of his sovereignty. How does a lost person live in this world? Under the sun. How does a a lost person live in this world so frail and so fickle, so broken? If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you know that deep down inside there's emptiness in your heart. You know that that deep down inside it is as though your, your life is hanging from a thread. It could change at any moment. And everything you've been working for and striving for could just come crumbling in a moment. Such is the nature of this fallen world. Moses said 70 or 80 years is the life of a person and they are hard, filled with suffering. This is human life. But God has sovereign control and we have no need to worry. We can trust the God of space 
and time. So God will multiply these boils, these sores on man and beast throughout all the land. These are festering boils or sores that break out with blisters. These are nasty little things, and they're all over. Maybe if you've had one sore, one sore, leaking sore, painful, inflamed, blistery, you know the pain that this brings. Imagine being covered in these sores. Many different explanations have been given for these sores, such as smallpox, Nile blisters, like scarlet fever, inflammations or blains that become malignant ulcers, or skin anthrax. Many different explanations. We're not told. We don't know. We can speculate. What we see here is a horrifically discomforting and debilitating plague. Whatever the particular malady we have here, we know that it would have been unbearable and debilitating for these people. These are leaking, pus-filled sores appearing on humans and animals. It is the affliction that we read about in Job chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome, loathsome. I I assume that these are also loathsome, Uh, meaning to be hated, awful, terrible, Loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. The dramatic effect of these sores, these boils or ulcers, is most evident in verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. You know, the last we heard of these magicians or these sorcerer priests was back in the third plague. Remember there in the third plague with the gnats that uh, Moses and Aaron, through God, the, the dust became, struck the dust, and the dust became gnats or mosquitoes or lice, whatever it was, on the people. What we see here is that these magicians come back into the scene. There in the third plague, they were unable to replicate what Moses and Aaron had done. And then we don't see them in the fourth plague, but here they reappear. They're back. Before, they were left defeated. Now, they couldn't replicate the plague, and they said, this is the finger of God. They looked at Pharaoh and said, this is the finger of God. Well, here, the hand of God has fallen upon them, specifically. And they can't even stand before Moses. For them, it is debilitating and defeating. And this is the last that we hear of these Egyptians. That is the last that we hear of these magicians or these sorcerer priests. It is as though they are swept away. Uh, They were crushed, uh, defeated. They were shown to be incapable. They were shown to be impotent. In the third plague, and here we are in the sixth plague, and it is as though they are swept away. And not only that, but the magicians would have played a key role in healing in ancient Egypt. Uh, the, The relationship between medicine and magic was quite close. And so if you were sick, if you had something wrong with you, boils, for example... 
And you would go and you would find these these magicians, these sorcerer priests. They were uh, the religious people and the medical people all wrapped into one. And they would supply as some kind of healing or they would attempt to supply some form of healing. Here, those who are supposed to be the healers are afflicted and unable to stand. Here, they cannot even heal themselves. Well, what about the gods? Sekhmet and Amun were two deities associated with healing. But once again, they are unable to perform. So it is not just that the magicians can't stand, it's that the magicians can't heal. And it's not just that the magicians are unable, it's that these gods of healing are also unable to perform. They are shown to be nothing, these so-called gods. The God of the Hebrews is sweeping away all competitors. Let me say that again. The God of the Hebrews is sweeping away all competitors. So let me say that to us this morning. The God of the Bible, the God whom we're reading about here in Scripture, this God, this very day among us, gathered here this morning, is in the business of sweeping away competitors. Competitors to his glory. Competitors uh, to the time devoted to him. Competitors to worship. Competitors to our obsessions and our thoughts and our fixations. All the competitors that modern life brings the sinful heart, all swept away by the glory of God in the plagues. Will you hear that this morning? As you're gathered here, will you hear that God is sweeping away those competitors? Will you let God sweep those competitors away in your life? Will you push them away and worship this God alone? This God alone who is able, this God alone who is powerful, this God alone who is worthy of our worship. So, of course, this would get Pharaoh's attention, right? Uh, Well, perhaps it would. But remember something. God is sovereignly overseeing Pharaoh's heart, and God is not done. So we read this in verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, we read throughout the plague accounts that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Just that language laid out there. That Pharaoh hardens his own heart and that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. So why is it here that we read specifically? Because before the plagues, we are told that God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So for me, in chapter 4 and chapter 7, we're told that's the case. For me, I understand God to be hardening Pharaoh's heart all along. Some have uh, drawn significance to this and said, look, uh, Pharaoh's been hardening his heart all along. And now God steps in and begins to harden Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh has been hardening his heart all along. I don't read it that way. Because in chapter 4 and chapter 7... The banner over all of Pharaoh's heart happenings is God's words to Moses when he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God is active all along. But why here? In verse 12, all of a sudden, do we read very explicitly, 
But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And I think perhaps the evidence is becoming overwhelming for Pharaoh. It is becoming overwhelming. He's done a little investigation in the fifth plague, and God did it. He drew a distinction. And now we see his magicians utterly powerless. Gods of Egypt unable to heal. Healers laid out with boils. But God is not done. God is not done showing his glory. God is not done giving out his judgment because God has not yet saved his people. God is making a name for himself in Egypt. He is making a name for himself among the Canaanites. Remember, I've mentioned this before, that when the spies come to Jericho and they see Rahab, Rahab discusses with them what they have heard about the power of Yahweh. Uh, The word about God's glory in Egypt and his judgment has gotten out. And it's not just the Egyptians who know of God's glory. It's the nations. And it is most especially his people. God is not done glorifying himself. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this food that we get this morning for our souls. We thank you, Lord God, how you provide for us what we need every day. You give us your word, and Lord, through it we come to see the glory of your eternal Son, the Son of God, the Word of God. Lord, we praise you for this one who is co-eternal with you, consubstantial, co-equal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, forever God. We praise you. And Father, we praise you for your Son who did now did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of man, taking the form of a servant, going to the cross. Lord, we bow before you this morning and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that through Jesus, the judgment that was ours was placed on him. We thank you that Jesus bore your wrath, wrath far worse than the plagues on the cross. His experience of the cross was worse than the experience of the Egyptians in the plagues. It's mind-numbing, Father. It's incomprehensible. Lord, help us to love this Savior, to worship this Savior, to serve this Savior, to sweep away all competitors to this Savior. Lord, thank you for our time together today. Would you be glorified as we now come to the Lord's Supper? We pray your blessing upon it. In the name of Jesus, amen.